What's up, everybody? Luke Thomas here on this, uh, let's see, 27th of June, 2016. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're the best. Uh, I did not do a Monday Morning Analyst last week, even though there was a UFC event last week. Why? Uh, my buddy got married. He got married up in the middle of nowhere, and he got married up in the middle of nowhere on a Sunday evening. So it just took me forever to get back, and by the time I was able to get back, I still didn't have a chance to watch because we were in the middle of nowhere. And it was a pain in the ass. So uh, I just couldn't make it work on time. And um, I apologize for that. But here I am today. So what we're going to do is we're going to briefly, in the first segment, go over the Bellator results. There's not much to break down in terms of technique. Um, so in the second segment, we're going to talk about Wonderboy Thompson versus um, Roy McDonald. That was from, of course, the previous Saturday from UFC Ottawa. And Connor uh, Rebush will help us do that. Boxing Bush on Twitter, who is also on the Heavy Hands podcast co-host. So that should be some fun as well. Uh, okay, so without further ado, again, appreciate everyone uh, sticking with me and forgiving me for not doing one last week. I apologize for that. But, you know, blame my friend who decided to get married in a place that no person should ever get married. <laughs> well, that's not true, but that makes it difficult to do podcasts the next day. How about that? All right, so uh, let's talk quickly about the show from Friday. Bellator 157 Dynamite 2. This took place at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri. The attendance, 11,982. The total gate, $1,033,589. It was headlined by a heavyweight clash between Quinton Jackson and Satoshi Ishii, and Jackson wins via split decision 29-28, 28 30-27. 30-27 is completely unjustifiable. But uh, 29-28 is actually how I scored it for Rampage. Um, so what happened here? Basically, Rampage couldn't really get a lot of distance from Ishii. Ishii was kind of all over him. In fact, in that first round, able to score some inside trips. Uh, by the second round, though, Rampage is either, either able to stuff the takedown, uh, in some cases launch an attempt of his own, but work in the clinch, dirty box, you know, operate in that space. He was never really able to connect at range, but he was able to connect just enough uh, in that inside space with just enough takedown defense in the second round where I thought he was actually landing a lot more strikes. In the third round, he sort of pretty clearly won, so that's why I give it 29-28. But Rampage didn't look good. Um, he just didn't look fit, and he had talked about ring rust after the fact. Uh, so we'll see if he can make a turnaround um, and look a little better next time. But this was not a great performance from him. I got the job done. But he should be, even at a decline from his elite greatness, should still be leagues above Satoshi Ishii. Uh, Ishii had his moments. That inside trip was really nice. Um, you know, he does everything. Obviously, a go Olympic judo gold medalist, even one that has not the greatest MMA career, is still going to be pretty good with his judo. He had that, that wonderful inside trip in that first round. Really, really sharp stuff. It had a second, I think, Osotogari. I have to go back and watch in the, uh, also in the first round. But that was about it. I didn't have much more than that. Once he got to the ground, there was really nothing he was adding um, to the whole equation. Uh, in the co-main event, Michael Chandler whoo, defeats Patricky Frede at 2.14 of the first round with a one-hitter-quitter. I mean, goodness, what a vicious KO. Arguably KO of the year, really. Um, you know, was doing a really good job of measuring him with his jab, of finding his range, and then at a almost 45-degree angle, leapt in with a right hand. He sort of takes a jump. Like, imagine if you were running to throw a ball. You would run, and you would stop on a dime, and then use the momentum to throw the ball, right? And it would just, you would chuck it as far as you could. Um, it was something like that in, in a, obviously, a much more 
controlled way. He kind of measures, measures, move forwards, and then what you see is this like crow hop that he takes. He kind of hops into place and then uses that momentum to fire the right hand. He just knew what his distance was. So for me, it's like we always knew he was explosive. We always knew he had great hand speed. But now what you're seeing is a little bit of angles that he was needing to find and then really good use of the jab, staying out of trouble, finding his range, finding his range, and then blasting into it when he needed to. That was, uh, I mean, violent stuff. For Michael Chandler, I still think that he hasn't had a win since losing to Will Brooks. That tells us if he's really truly back to an elite level. Um, but these rehabilitative wins, I do think, have some value in maybe getting him there. Uh, let's see. And then they had a kickboxing bout: Kevin Ross defeating Justin Houghton, or as he tattooed on himself, J Ho. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but this is probably one of those tattoos that, you know. Regrettable life choice at some point down the line. Uh, 29, 27, 29, 27, 30, 26. Uh, not much to really say about this. I thought the kickboxing in... It's weird, right? Like, I don't feel like they've gotten the kickboxing use down right. Here's a couple things I would suggest. Number one, if you really are trying to create mismatches, which is what this was, then maybe have it at heavyweight because you're, if you're trying to create a mismatch, you're trying to create a finish. The heavyweight guys are much more likely to be able to do that on those kinds of terms. Um, often what you're seeing is these guys like Kevin Ross or Paul Daly against Fernando Gonzalez, they're slow to open up because they know they can win, but they don't want to make any mistakes. You know, they're supposed to win these kinds of fights. And so I don't feel like they're going to go out there and go for the gusto. That's one problem. The other problem is like, if you're going to have a kickboxing bout on, it has to really push the show along. And it just seems like it, like we have these detours. The kickboxing fights always feel like detours off what we're on. So for me, it's like, rather than going to commercial break and then coming back and setting it all up, they should have the guys in the kickboxing ring right as that MMA fight ends, and then you don't go to commercial, and you go right to the next fight. Like, they announce so-and-so wins by unanimous decision, fighter X, boom, no post-fight interview, and over here in the red corner, weighing in at 400 and blah, blah, blah pounds, or whatever the case may be, I feel like that would really keep the pace up and really sort of like put the pedal to the metal from a production standpoint. That'd make it a little more interesting. But the other part is like, you know, Hisaki Katsu versus Joe Schilling was supposed to be a mismatch in some ways, um, and Schilling was certainly in control of that. Um, but it doesn't, like, so in other words, you could make an argument that they should put competitive kickboxing fights on their main card. In theory, that was not supposed to be a competitive fight, although we all saw what happened. But the point being is, at least put the stars on there. Like, why would you put Joe Schilling on a separate kickboxing card off of that 8 to 11 sort of primetime spot? I don't, I don't really understand that at all. So I'm not saying, again, a lot of people are like, the kickboxing doesn't work. And maybe it won't. Maybe they just won't find the right formula. But I still think the jury's out on that a little bit. They just... They need to stop treating the kickboxing like a detour off of MMA. They need to make it all work seamlessly. Uh, women's flyweight. This is a great fight, actually. Ilima Lay McFarland defeating Rebecca Ruth at three minutes of the second round. If you watch any tape on Ruth, she's like a sort of a cyborg-esque kind of fighter. Pressures you forward all the time. Good takedowns, good takedown defense. Loves to just exchange and bite down on the mouthpiece. And, you know, when you're in a women's flyweight and you have this sort of bruising, marauding style, you can get pretty far with that. Um, the only problem is, um, for her, McFarlane was just all over her. McFarlane stuck to her like glue, constantly pressuring with the takedown, constantly looking for the back, constantly looking for the rear naked choke, uh, and ultimately finding it. Really, really smart game plan. Similar to what Ishii was doing to Rampage, just never, never giving her space to breathe. And then ultimately, 
uh, you could see that some of Ruth's hand fighting skills maybe not quite up to par for what she needed. She did a pretty good job of getting two on one. When you get two on one, man, one of the tricks is you can't just hold their arm because if I hold your wrist, your elbow can still move with your shoulder, right? Now, if I extend your arm and I can't pull my elbow back, then I'm in trouble, right? So, in other words, if someone if you're trying to get two on one and you just have their wrist but they can still kind of move and you're scrambling so that they can move their elbow off the mat and position their own weight and their own space around you like that, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. You got to get that two on one and you got to get it extended. You got to have your ear to the back of their shoulder. You got to get right up in tight on that. And that takes, that's hard to do, you know, and that's obviously an ideal position. It's not always going to work that way, but as a general rule, man, you don't want their elbow to be in motion. You want to get that thing out and and controlled. Almost like I mean, you're not going to arm bar him because you're really almost never going to be able to get that kind of leverage on him. But as a general rule, you go back and you watch this fight with McFarland. She was able to like she, like Ruth would get that two on one on her several times, and you'd see McFarland would just come over and then he'd just wrap her arm over or like this is the head. She'd just come and wrap it over, even with a two on one control. It's not the kind of secure two on one you really got to get to to make that work. Uh, let's see, Gloria uh, Paratori defeated Denise Kielholtz, split decision, this was a bit of an upset, I think Kielholtz was the one they sort of identified it as an emerging star in the kickboxing world, uh, at least for Bellator anyway, uh, and then this was this was crazy, Matt Mitrion defeating Carl Sayumano Tafa at 322 of the very first round, this was a wild one, uh, I'm actually going to put up a graphic right now and you'll see, uh, look how low the hands are on Matt Mitrion, so the, the lead into this is that Matt Mitrion starts in his normal uh, stance and is bouncing around, kind of double jabs to a cross from southpaw, um, you know, kind of feeling things out, like fighting home for a right cross occasionally. And then he switches stances. He throws a shot. It gets parried by uh, Sammy Minotafa. Minotafa launches a left that gets kind of blocked, you can see here, from um, Sammy Minotafa. And then there, look how low the, the, the hand is here. The hand is so low that, uh, well, you saw what happened. Sammy Minotafa comes with a right and absolutely drills him. Some folks were questioning whether that fight should have been stopped. Um, I went back and watched it a few times. I'm not saying a lesser referee wouldn't have, but Big John didn't, and I think he had cause not to, at least enough cause, although, wow, it was razor close. Anyway, uh, eventually what you see happen is... Um, I believe Mitrion gets gets reverse half guard or uh, yeah reverse half guard, then is able to get on top and full half guard, and then Sayu Manatafa gets the lockdown. But the lockdown is not a good idea. The lockdown is only a good idea if you're going to start then using the Eddie Bravo system, which you see a lot of guys do is they get the lockdown and they use it to hold you in place. Okay, and if, there's first of all there's ways to break the lockdown. You can simply you bring your heel to your rear end and then you flare one side to the other to create the opening lane for space. Um, but that's one way to get out of it. But even if you don't want to do that, just think about it logically. Like, what are you doing if you have the lockdown and you're not using the other complementary forms of offense that go with the lockdown? Yes, you're holding them in place. You're just holding yourself in place. You're essentially saying, I have no use for my guard as such. I'm not going to do anything except just hold you here. It's stalling. It's just stalling is all that is. There's nothing more to it. It's not complicated. You can do the lockdown if you want to do all the other things that the lockdown is used for by people like Bravo or Gio Martinez or whoever. But if you're just going to use the lockdown, you're stalling. Straight up 100% stalling. And you're not 
you're not doing anything for yourself. You're not really meaningfully contributing to offense in any kind of way. So um, I think if someone is just going to do lockdown and then they're just holding overhooks and and collar ties, I think the ref is well within his right to stand them up personally. But okay, neither here nor there. Eventually, uh, Mitrion gets to his feet and he blasts him with the right and puts him away. And then it says, I don't remember anything. And then Bellator says, hey, here's another fight in a month. Which is like the most Bellator thing ever, but I guess they walked it back at the post-fight press conference. But uh, a little bit of a rough ride there for uh, Mitrion, but he ultimately came through and he wins. So, and then you had the uh, kickboxing card, which I'm really not even going to talk about much, uh, except Hisaki Kato defeating poor Joe Schilling. Um, whew, that's a tough road for him, man. Raymond Daniels defeating Stefano Bruno. Liver kick, of course. Raymond Daniels just in complete control. And then Kerry Melendez defeating Sarah Howell. We'll see if Kerry Melendez can really turn into a big star for them. She's obviously at the very burgeoning stages of her fighting career, but we'll see how things go. Uh, I haven't done this one in a while, but I will do it this time. Fighter of the card. Obviously going to go to Michael Chandler for just an absolutely crushing right hand on the chin of Patricky Freda and becoming, again, the Bellator lightweight champ. Uh, okay, so that's it for Bellator 157 Dynamite 2. So-so uh, card at best, and uh, not, not a whole lot of breakdowns really need to go into this. So here's what I did again. I brought in Connor Rebush to help me talk about and break down what happened between uh, Rory McDonald and Wonderboy Thompson. Let's take let's uh, go to that conversation now. We'll watch that, and then we'll finish things off in segment three. All right, we're back. So I had promised to the extent that I felt it necessary and to the extent that it could be beneficial, we'd bring in some other voices and some other names uh, to help break down some fights. That's exactly what we've done today. Didn't get a chance to do the uh, Wonderboy Thompson from last week because I was traveling from a wedding, but I'm not going to leave you hanging this week. So to her, here to help me break that down is a fight analyst for, you can catch his podcast, Heavy Hands Podcast. He's on BloodyElbow.com as well. Uh, the great Connor Rebush. Is it Rebush or Rebush? I always get that messed up in my brain. It's Rebush, but it's, it, Rebush. it's okay because... It. Well, Re Rebush makes no sense given the spelling, so I don't really ever get upset about it. <laughs> the U is silent, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. It, it, yeah, it, it, I think it, it, it's silent or it, it pretends that it's the other order of letters or something. And unlike you, Luke, I don't have a social life. I don't go to weddings or anything, so I'm down to talk about main event fights like this one pretty much any time. Yeah, well, that's why you're good at breaking down fights. You spend a lot of time doing it, and it shows. So I'm glad, happy to have you here, and thank you for joining me. Thank um, you, of course. So let's... let's I watched this fight a couple of times, and in some ways it's baffling, and in some ways it's not. Let me give you a little bit of context here. I actually interviewed Wonder Boy the day after this fight, I guess that Monday for my radio show. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's when it was. In any case, and he told me something kind of interesting. He was like, you know, I had a game plan in mind to basically put it on him, like really uh, press hard with footwork and cutting off uh, and creating angles and, and pushing Rory backwards. And he said what he noticed within the first 10 seconds of trying to get that going was that McDonald was anticipating that. He says he, he says he just knew it. He could read it right away. So he said he had to change his game plan on a dime. And he had to be this slow, methodical thing. And actually, it's kind of funny when you watch or you actually look at the stats. The stats show both guys landed more as each round progressed. But that would mm -hmm. make sense, right? Because it would be McDonald pursuing... I'm sorry, it'd be uh, Thompson pursuing more and more and more as he got comfortable, and then McDonald reacting more. Re McDonald always had a deficit, but that nevertheless uh, being the case. When I tell you that, what's your reaction to that? I, I have to wonder what he saw that made him think that McDonald was ready to be pressured by Stephen Thompson. Because it's, it certainly wasn't what Stephen Thompson had done in the past. Um, 
it, it gives me a different perspective hearing that because my impression of the fight is that McDonald came in wanting to pressure, which is something he's he's normally quite good at. He did it against uh, Tyron Woodley. He did it uh, often against Robbie Lawler. He's had great success pushing guys against the fence and, and letting his combinations go. And that he was just entirely too cautious to do it effectively. Um, I think that both Rory and Faraz Zahabi, his coach, Obviously, I have I have immense respect for both of them. Both very intelligent. Rory's one of the most well-rounded, all-terrain fighters in the sport right now. He can pretty much do anything. He's got a very adaptable style. His skills cover the whole breadth of what's possible in MMA. But um, you know, it's like the old GSP criticism, which was always a little unfair. But uh, the people said it for a reason. It's kind of a risk-averse approach to fighting. And I think that to fight Stephen Thompson, Rory McDonald would have needed to take a good amount of calculated risks and that he wasn't really willing to do that um, the way I expected him to be. Hmm. All right. So um, I actually didn't watch the fight until after. Well, I'd seen a couple of rounds, I guess I should say, some, to do my enough due diligence to do the um, interview with Wonderboy. At least semi-correctly. Do, do you ever uh, do you ever get complaints for that from from fans who expect you to watch every event live? I normally don't miss them. It's not too much of a problem. Oh, sick. And, and I have to watch them after the fact all the time. Really? Yeah. Well, weekends are time. I, I work all week working on stuff, so my girlfriend would literally slip my throat in my sleep if I didn't do something with her on the weekends. <laughs> so people don't get that. My, my wife has just sort of come to terms with it, you know, so it's not, <laughs> it's not that big a deal. But in this particular case, it was it was literally just a function of I didn't have access to the internet. I couldn't even I couldn't even steal the fight if I wanted to because of where I was and, or I was traveling somewhere. So I just it, it just wasn't possible. I managed mm-hmm. to sneak in a couple of rounds before doing the interview just to get a sense of things. And of course, I read through some live blog stuff. So I didn't see it until at, basically in totality until uh, after I had this interview with Wonder Boy. And then when he when he spoke to me that way. And then when I watched the full fight, it seemed to, to make sense that way. Here's what really got me about Roy McDonald. Let's start with him first. Let's start with a bit of a big picture thing here. I don't, what do you say about that? This is a guy who you know, is he, he does take time to warm up, but he has really great combination mm-hmm. punching. Um, I should say combination striking, really, if I'm being quite fair. Uh, and I just didn't see a lot of that. I saw a little bit of these one shot, saw a little bit of like covering up, turtling, and trying to walk inside, which is yeah. never really going to work against Wonder Boy. What did he you see from some, the striking of of McDonald? He had some interesting things, like you just pointed out. He was doing a lot of these this cross armed guard stuff to get in, like um, Archie Moore style or like George Foreman style, which actually kind of makes sense as an adaptation because one of Rory's big uh, physiological problems is that he's really stiff. His, his back, his upper body, and his hips. So he's never really been able to incorporate head movement that well. It's also not a thing that I think Faraz Zahabi teaches a lot of. GSP never had great head movement. Nordin Taleb doesn't have great head movement. John McDessie, they're mostly footwork guys. That's their focus. Um, but I thought it was kind of cool uh, to just to see something different. But, um, I mean, I can see what you're saying. Perhaps Rory... Uh, the the reason he was hanging back is because he was expecting Thompson to come after him. The way that I read it is that Rory was so anxious about getting countered because that has been Stephen Thompson's thing that he 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 gets all this credit for his uh, his kicks and his his weird movements and all this obscure stuff he can throw at you at range. But really, what makes him dangerous is his counter punching. Is when you overcommit and come into the pocket. 
and he takes a hop step back at an angle and then drops you with the right hand. He did it to Johnny Hendricks. He did it to Patrick Cote. He's done it to everyone he's knocked out except for the two that he knocked out with weird kicks to the head. So, uh, And he hits everyone with it. And he hit Rory with it as well. So that's what they were really anxious about. Um, that risk-averse thing, though, what I saw from Rory is that he was so so conscious of being hit by those counter punches, so conscious of of uh, so conscious of, of running into something that he didn't throw anything at all. Uh, specifically, the jab. It's really weird to see a Rory McDonald fight that does not include much jabbing. He was so nervous to throw it because, yeah. Uh, if you commit to a jab, Thompson likes to fade back to his right and counter with the right hand. But the solution to he's going to counter my jab, the way a jab works, that's not even really a weakness. If a guy's going to counter your jab, that's great. You can get him to counter using the jab and then hit him when he tries. A jab, it's, the effectiveness of a jab is so far beyond whether it connects or not or whether you can score with it. A jab is a tool that sets everything else up. You know, people say that the jab is everything, but I, I think a better way to say it is that everything starts with the jab and things related to the jab, feints, things that can get the guy reacting. You don't even have to throw the jab. If he counters it once, you just have to suggest it the next time and then um, use his reaction to find an opening. And Rory wasn't doing any of that. His solution to the jab might be counterable was to – so maybe maybe you are right and maybe he was expecting that he was going to force Thompson to come forward and counter him. He th did throw a lot of counter punches and didn't lead very much. So maybe he was hoping that by hanging back, uh, he was going to find those opportunities and make Thompson do a thing he's uncomfortable with. But Thompson has the super evolved version of the Leota Machida game. He, he hangs back and he just picks away with these very long range tools until you're frustrated enough that you do start to overcommit and then he counters you. It's like Lyoto Machida's game with all the little things that Lyoto was missing for so many years that, that gave him trouble. So you've got to find a way to take away what he does well. You can't just hope to throw him off his game because Stephen Thompson quite clearly does not mind winning three boring rounds from the outside. He doesn't give a damn. He or won five. that fight very – yeah, we, yeah. The first, I mean the, the last two were kind of exciting right. is why I said that. But he doesn't mind if you're not rushing in. He's just going to sidekick you in the belly once every 35 seconds. And you're going to lose the round. So I, I did find it to be strange. It was a story of two fights. Stephen Thompson doing a great job of dealing with what he was given, um, adapting on the fly uh, as he, he felt he had to abandon a strategy that he, he thought wasn't going to work for him. And Rory McDonald kind of failing to capitalize on the opportunities that were there. Because, I, I mean, tell me this. Um, at any point in that fight, did it feel like it was a completely unwinnable fight for Rory McDonald? No. I don't think I ever felt like he was. I mean, there was a couple points where he was getting uh, lit up, as you mentioned, uh, towards the end of the uh, fourth and the fifth. But it never felt hopeless. It just felt like he wasn't able to do much or wasn't willing to do much. Right. You know, in the fifth round, like the irony is that because he wasn't touching Stephen Thompson with the jab and he wasn't drawing things out of him, he wasn't forcing him to counter and countering the counters. He wasn't making him react or. He wasn't using the jabs and the feints to get him to stop reacting so that he could then lead with something else. The The irony is that in the fifth round, he did end up lunging in across open space, open space and getting countered like Johnny Hendricks did. His, his, his fear of being tagged coming in is exactly what created the situation that almost had him knocked out in the fifth round again 
like he was against Robbie Lawler because he got his nose shattered. So it was a strange fight. Um, let's, th- there let's, were a lot let's, of. Well, let's focus on a couple other things if we can here. There were. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just say something about the takedowns of Rory McDonald, such that they yeah. existed. People were complaining about the Imanari rolls. I am not complaining about the Imanari rolls. Now, I you can com- I think that you can make an argument that Imanari rolls absent other takedown threats, namely not merely a shot of some kind or something from the clinch, but uh, pressure into takedown range, like getting him to think about it. All those things are connected to the takedown. Absent that and just doing Imanari rolls, okay, I don't think that's so great. But the Imanari rolls... They're low percentage, but for people who are good at them, and maybe Roy's not the best at them, but for people who are good at them, they are highly effective. And I would point to Tony Ferguson. Again, I'm not comparing necessarily the games of Rory McDonald to Tony Ferguson, but what you see from Tony Ferguson is he can do all manner of different kinds of takedowns. That chaotic sort of, I'll swing to this side of the fight and then change and do this side of the fight, and this crazy different diversity of attack, it, it, it meshes better with him. So, again, mm-hmm. I think you can make a knock on Rory for not trying the more conventional things and then mixing this in. But I like Imanari rolls. I think they do work, and uh, it, it was at least something. Where, what was your position on this takedown threat? There, there was nothing more enjoyable about this fight than the fact that Rory McDonald's very first technique was an attempted Imanari roll. I was not disappointed to see that at all. Um, I, I don't I don't see a problem with trying some esoteric stuff. As far as that, that kind of thing goes, it's a fairly safe technique. Um, Stephen Thompson doesn't want to jump on top of you on the ground, and I'm sure Rory McDonald would have been okay trying to sweep him from that position. And it's not that easy to counter when a guy is so low, so he can't kick you. So, you know, why not? Throw it out there, see how he reacts. Get him thinking about weird things that aren't normal takedowns. Maybe you'll jam up the works. It, but... He almost did what you you just said would have been a problem. He threw about three Imanari rolls before he went for a single shot. Um, and it wasn't much of a shot either. I, I think he really thought he was going to work him in the clinch and against the cage, and he had trouble there. So uh, it kind of became the Imanari rolls and then an absence of any takedown attempts whatsoever, which I found strange. Yeah, and it created a weird focus on the rolls when I was thinking to myself that the criticism is not the rolls, it's that the rolls yeah. were standing alone, essentially. Um, I think Faraz has kind of um, a love affair going on with leg leg attacks now, uh, with leg locks. If you've, if you've seen his YouTube channel, the TriStar MMA channel, he's talked about leg locks for, for sweeping and off-balancing. Uh, it, it plays very well into his 60-second guard idea where he talks about not spending a long amount of time static on your back but immediately upsetting the guy and not necessarily finishing the leg locks but using it to sweep. But now all of his guys are using leg locks, and I'm not sure they're fully comfortable with it yet. We saw uh, Tom Brees do it in this fight with um, Sean Strickland. Who do you have? A... No, one before that. Japanese oh, uh, veteran. Uh, Kaito Nakamura? Yeah, Kaito Nakamura. We saw Rory do it here, and we saw – I want to say one of his other guys was doing it recently too. So I wonder if maybe Rory thought he was going to do this leg lock series. Um and what weirdly went into the fight expecting that to work so well that he didn't pre- he wasn't prepared to change things up. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, the other part of that, that was interesting about Rory McDonald, and we'll switch to Tom Thompson here in just a second. Um, some of that work in the clinch. The clinch work was not particularly impressive uh, for lots of reasons. One, Thompson was on the move, or two, Thompson had some good defense. But this was interesting to me too. Thompson said he. I asked him if he was in any, in any pain when we when we talked, and he was like, uh... My face hurts. Rory caught me with some good shots in the clinch, particularly some elbows. 
And I went back and looked at some of the stats and, and then some of the fight footage. He did connect a little bit inside the clinch. Now, not much, not enough to really matter to take any of the rounds necessarily. But mm -hmm. I guess what I would ask you is, was the clinch a lost cause here for Roy McDonald? No, I don't think so. I think it was a matter of getting to the clinch. He had a really small sample size to work with. Uh, you know, he had about three or four good clinch exchanges over the course of 25 minutes. Um, and he landed some good shots in there. Now, Thompson, of course, was flurrying, and he did a fantastic job of keeping his hip safe. But uh, I think uh, one of the biggest failures of this fight, and there's more to this that we could talk about later, but is that he didn't – Roy McDonald wasn't able to press those ranges where he could have worn Thompson down. I think that would have mattered even more than doing damage in the early rounds is just making him work. Stephen Thompson has such a uh, high-energy style, the way he moves and the types of strikes he likes to throw at range, that he, he's shown in the past many times he can't afford to do that for even three rounds without slowing seriously, and I, I assume not five rounds. And so I think the clinch would have been a great way to just wear on him and just make him work, force him to hold his head up so he can't get pulled down into a knee, force him to keep his hips away from you. You don't have to, again, like the jab, you don't have to finish those things for that to be effective. You don't have to finish a takedown. You don't have to land a ton of good shots because you will later if you just keep going for it. You know, you will by the end of the fight. So then let me ask you in this general way here. If I had to, if someone put the question to you, that's a big one, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to go on and on about this. I kind of want to make it as succinct as possible to help people listening and watching crystallize this. But if I had to ask you why Rory McDonald lost versus why Wonderboy Thompson won, which we'll get to in a minute, and I know the two are obviously and in, in uh, uh, you know directly related, but in yeah. thinking of the question that way, why did Rory McDonald lose? I think he did not put enough pressure on Stephen Thompson early. And I don't think he had to rush after him and make himself open to be countered. I think he needed to force him to react. I think he just needed to show him things. He needed to put him near the fence. And when he got him there, he needed to try to hit him. Even if he wasn't very successful, I think the biggest thing he needed to do in this fight is take advantage of the fact that he's Rory McDonald and he does really well over long periods of time because he's so efficient and that Stephen Thompson – is not the same way. Stephen Thompson's very effective when he's fresh, but we've seen against Matt Brown, against Patrick Cote, against Nishan Burrell, he slows down later in his fights. And Rory, I thought, had the style to do that and it just took so long to get going that by the time he did ramp it up, Stephen was more than capable of matching his output. So let's talk about Wonderboy Thompson, who, again, yeah. uh, started slow and got hot, which I thought was important. Um I didn't find this to be, what's the word, one of the more marvelous performances of Wonder Boy's career. I found it to be, mm -hmm. I don't think pedestrian is the right word either, but certainly a little bit more lunch palish. Not a lot of uh, uh, stance switching, not a lot of necessarily esoteric strikes, not a lot of build up to, to, to something of great significance. Just a, lot, just, just a consistent application of what he does well. What did Wonder Boy Thompson do well in this fight? I think the, the thing you mentioned there, the lack of stance switching, is a big part of it. I think he really, really um, expected – I think he expected Rory McDonald to um, be uncomfortable at long range. And he didn't want him to be able to easily close the distance. And whether he thought that was going to be an adaptation of what Rory came in wanting to do or whatever, uh, he wanted to maintain that distance early on rather than pressuring as he, as he told you he had intended to do. 
And so that southpaw stance against an orthodox fighter, because we know Rory's not really comfortable changing stances. He tried some weird stuff, changed like Gennady Golovkin style shifts into the pocket and bizarre things, but he's that's not his game. Um, that's Stephen Thompson's thing. And so using that comfort in both stances, he he kept that that open stance where they were in opposite positions so that Rory couldn't get past his lead leg and his lead hand because Rory can step in really hard and pretty quick and move his feet subtly in straight lines um, to close the distance, but it's harder to do that against a southpaw when his foot is right in front of your foot. You could step on his foot, I suppose, but even then, Thompson likes to lean back. You're not going to be able to hit him that easily. Uh, and then because the sidekick is his thing rather than the jab, every time Rory tried to move around that foot the way that you're usually taught to do against southpaws, Thompson could just pick up his foot and kick him with the sidekick. And the sidekick is a weird thing. A jab, you have to face somebody to hit him with it. Your toes have to be pointed basically at their crotch, at the center of their body, to hit them with your jab. With the sidekick, you can throw it like a back kick even when they're all the way around at your back and still connect with a good, powerful strike. And so there was really no way for Rory to easily get past that southpaw stance now again he could have fainted and drawn those things out or gotten stomp thompson to stop reacting when he should have been but it thompson did a fantastic job of making it difficult for him to navigate past that lead foot and that starts with just making that lead foot an obstacle so i think the fact that he stuck to southpaw for the vast majority of this fight was a, a pretty brilliant uh idea to allow him more time and more space to figure out how Rory McDonald was going to adapt to him. I thought the most important, uh, or at least the most consistent kind of offense you could really identify from Wonderboy in terms of what landed uh, was the combination punching. Uh, now, this involved, of course, footwork. This involves the lean. It involves good timing. It involves every number of different things um, in elite MMA that make combination striking or combination punching effective. But he, he never really lands one punch at a time, does he? He lands two or three, or at least he swings yeah. for two or three, and maybe he connects on two. Um, this this was what essentially, in my judgment, won him the fight. How good or how would you evaluate the combination punching of Roy of uh, Wonderboy Thompson? Pretty good. Uh, you wouldn't expect him to be that great of a boxer, but I've been pretty impressed with his hands ever since he fought Robert Whitaker. I thought that was a really impressive performance when he he has a guy with very very good boxing coming in um, and he can pick him off with punches. I think the biggest thing for Stephen Thompson. And this is yet another contrast between him and Rory McDonald is that he can set those punches up off of his his movement in the pocket. Thompson keeps a really wide stance, legs very far apart, um, but he's very comfortable leaning back over that back leg. Uh, people will have seen that from guys like Floyd Mayweather, that kind of pull counter where you'll fade away and then lean back forward over your front foot. He does the same thing by opening his stance. Sometimes he keeps his feet really close so he can kick, but all he has to do to get away from your punches is to step back with his back leg and keep his front foot planted. And so then he can move between his feet and still reach you, but still get far enough away not to get hit. So it makes him look like this marvelous combination puncher, even though most of what he does is fairly... Um, meat and potatoes. It's mostly just straights, the occasional uppercut when he sees that you're ducking the straights. Uh, but the way he puts it together is really nice. And he's always, always moving and adjusting between having hit you. He's always uh, taking sidesteps or moving away or creating angles 
after he hits you, which is great because that's something a lot of guys with his length and his style have failed to do. Even guys as good as Alexander Gustafson struggle to do that sometimes. Stephen Thompson never fails to capitalize on the hesitation, the opportunities created by the fact that he has just hit you with his knuckles. So he's very difficult to track down as a result. There were a couple of times where I mentioned before he was saying his face got a little bit banged up in the clinch, and you go and especially in that fifth round, there was a couple of times that McDonald got him backed up, and when mm-hmm. he did, it looked like either I'm not exactly sure what Thompson was trying to do, um, punch his way out of the of the pocket, um, exchange with him because he thought he could just be faster and land more. I'm not sure what, but he got chewed up a little bit doing that. Um, was this a weakness of strategy in this particular fight, or is this something you've seen over the course of his fights where he can be baited a little bit? For a guy who's on the move, for the most part, right? You get him backed up, he can still be baited into exchanging. Yeah, he's done it a bit in the past. Um, he certainly did it with Matt Brown, uh, and I don't, I don't think it's – and we, if you've seen his kickboxing career at all, he had his, his fight with uh, Raymond Daniels where he did this almost embarrassingly awkward flurry that and ended up shredding his knee in the process. He tore all three major ligaments in his knee. So he has a little bit of um, pit bull in him when you, when you go toe to toe, sometimes that can be a really good thing for an outfighter. Um, the way that Fabricio Verdum beat Cain Velasquez, for example, if a guy's pressuring you and he's a good enough pressure fighter that you feel like you can't get out. Sometimes it really helps to plant your feet and, and slug with him for a minute just to prove that you can. Um, Anthony Pettis does this as well. He did it really well against Tafa Dos Anjos. Again, that shows the weakness because it doesn't always work out in your favor. Uh, it, it is fighting against what you're really best at. So, you know, it, it's okay. I, I would like to see, I think one of the biggest things missing in MMA, and this, this includes guys as great as Steven Thompson, who is fantastic, is uh, is tight footwork, is pivots and and small footwork. Um, this is actually something Rory does really really well, um, but he's not usually fighting evasively, so it doesn't look as flashy. But uh, I would love to see guys like Stephen Thompson, and Alexander Gustafson, just pivoting and just staying close to the guy until they get their back to center cage. You see a lot of guys skipping along the fence, and if you do that, then at some point you have no. You have no choice but to stand your ground and and trade punches with the guy to find a way out. Uh, If he was stepping into him and turning around to him and the way TJ Dillashaw did to Hennem Burrell, then uh, he may not have even had to do that. He may not have had to take those risks because those were some pretty even exchanges when that did happen. You give Roy McDonald a chance to put his punches together and it's a dangerous proposition. So let's wrap this up here if we can. We could go on forever about this, but the fight was a little Obviously bit... I could. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the fight was the fight was important and the fight tells yeah. you a lot, but it wasn't it wasn't the most um representative or illuminating experience. There's things to take from there, but I don't want to be overly uh, you know, uh, examining it. So let's just do this. We asked the question about why McDonald lost. Again, the two are inextricably linked, but if I had to ask you, oh, my dog is here. I don't know if you can see him. Uh why did Rory McDonald win? What were the what were the small, I guess, even big things he did that ensured his victory on that Saturday night? I think I think Stephen Thompson was very patient um, against a guy who is also very patient. And because Rory McDonald didn't see a lot of openings, he didn't pounce. It was the perfect tack to take. I don't have any problem with performances like this from guys like Stephen Thompson. This is like Max Holloway. Uh, beating Jeremy Stevens in a in a fairly straightforward fight, it's like 
Brian McDonald himself beating Jake Ellenberger. Uh, this shows that prospects, guys, even Stephen Thompson's 33 years old, but guys who are still learning the MMA game, still early in their careers, uh, are comfortable enough to just win a fight. Uh, Stephen Thompson didn't have to go out there and press the action, and he didn't. He waited for Roy McDonald to make the first mistake, and the beauty of that is that in the meantime, he was winning the rounds, or he was at least making them so close that you couldn't really uh, call it one way or the other. They were draw rounds or the rounds he was winning. And so there was really no doubt by the end of this fight that he had won, even if it wasn't as scintillating and as fantastic as you wanted it to be. He, he showed his craft, but also his maturity. And so it's different than a sort of skill exhibition. But uh, I think that maturity, that experience is just as valuable for a fighter. It's, it's not great for a guy like Stephen Thompson to come up having all exciting fights. Because exciting fights, um, though we hate to admit it, often mean that a guy is he's not good enough to avoid them. Guys who are really, really good, they know how to take the fight out of the fight. And I think Stephen Thompson, he did that pretty beautifully against Roy McDonald. Uh, how can folks get at you on Twitter or what, what, like your social media outlet of choice? My presence? I'm, uh, I am I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm at BoxingBush, B-U-S-C-H. And you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Rebush MMA. Find me on Twitter first. That will help you spelling it because, like I said, it doesn't sound right. Well, uh, always great. We'll definitely get you back on again. Appreciate all your insight. Happy uh, to. Follow him uh, and uh, all his work. The Heavy Hands podcast is great, by the way. One of the better podcasts in mixed martial arts today. So there's good work to be had there as well. Connor. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. We'll get you on again soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. And last but not least, big thanks to Connor for this. Uh, segment three, we usually just take a look at what's up ahead. And here's the truth. There is nothing up ahead. I don't believe there's any real major MMA of any significance. There's no Bellator, as I understand it, right? I don't. There's no. There's definitely no World Series of Fighting. Let's see. Bellator 158 is going to be July 16th. So no, that's not it. There's no UFC. Obviously, we have the big week next week with the three back-to-back-to-back UFC events. I'll be in Vegas for that. So of course, we'll have a lot of breakdown and coverage of that. But um, it's your Fourth of July, so enjoy your weekend. Um, celebrate los Estados Unidos. And uh, thank you so much for watching this podcast. Please share it around. Give it a thumbs up. Really appreciate it. Again, thanks to Connor Rebush. And until next week, I'll figure out something to do for this podcast. We'll do something. And until next week, enjoy the fights.